Uh, you know that I, I, I read a lot of news, not as much as I used to, but uh, still read a lot of news. And uh, in today's world, going through the news, searching for what's actually true is a bit of a chore. It takes, uh, takes quite a bit of effort, quite a bit of work to figure out what is so. Uh, every once in a while, uh, something in the national news will, will pop up uh, that happened in Missouri, and that always kind of gets my attention. Uh, this week, Missouri was in the news. Actually, uh, College of the Ozarks was in the news. And they're in the news because they have a lawsuit against uh, the Department of Housing and Urban Development and against, actually, the Biden administration specifically uh, because there was a rule change. And the rule change basically uh, equates gender identity with uh, sexuality. The school has argued in court that essentially what this will mean for them ultimately, if this, if this is uh, pursued by the government, federal government, is that it, it will mean that they will have to allow uh, men who identify as women to occupy women's dorms. Now, any of you went, who went to Christian college know that uh, gender-segregated dorms <laughs> are... A, a huge component of that, right? It's kind of how we maintain uh, some, some order and some morality. Um, uh, so they argue that the, this, this new rule will obligate them to allow uh, men who identify as women to occupy those women's dorms and women's bathrooms and vice versa, theoretically. Uh, HUD's lawyer claims that uh, Christian colleges are not targeted by this rule, but of course, this is the logical conclusion to this rule. And so it remains in court. We'll have to see um, how all of that plays out. It is kind of a dramatic situation. But what's even more interesting to me, what's even more scary to me, is that there has been absolutely no legislation there was no law passed. The president didn't, uh, didn't sign an, uh, a law into effect. Uh, your congressman didn't uh, have an opportunity to debate this. You certainly didn't have a chance to vote on it. All of this happened because of what we have grown quite accustomed to, something called an executive order. The president signs an executive order that executive order then effectively changes the definition of gender for the agencies that are part of the executive branch of government. So HUD being one of those agencies, they now are operating under a new definition of what gender means. And so if you are biologically male, but believe yourself to be female, you're now included as a female in the definition of gender under that agency and that changes how everything gets done. This, uh, this sort of bothers me. It should bother you as well. We as American Christians are sort of accustomed to thinking that our country is going to operate by some semblance of Judeo-Christian morality. And that's uh, not always the case and in a lot of ways has never really been the case. We also... We also count on our government being founded on democratic principles, such that we have a voice in the process. 
But that's less and less the case as well. As has been demonstrated amply in the last year, when government has a crisis, it gives itself, grants itself power to do things that it normally, under the normal rules, under the constitutional rules of government, should not be able to do. And so we'll take whatever crisis we can get, be it pandemic or climate change or race riots or what have you, in this case, transgender rights is a crisis, at least so defined by the government. And so the government will give itself executive power to make decisions that will change the national dialogue in favor of that agenda. As these crises, or so-called crises, continue to justify the overreach of power, the overreach of our executive branches of government, we have to ask ourselves, what is it that Christians do when the government asks us to compromise our morality or our faith? The truth is that Christians have always had a kind of a peculiar relationship with government. Jesus and Paul, of course, taught us that we should show a certain deference to government, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and so forth. But that didn't change the fact that for the first 300 years of church history, the Roman government was generally antagonistic towards Christians, often launching campaigns of persecution that resulted in their torture and death. After the conversion of Constantine, or, or that's how history records the event, but after the conversion of Constantine, things began to shift. And the Christians who at, once, uh, at one time had found themselves at the receiving end of all this persecution now find themselves in the favor of Roman government and eventually sort of in bed with Roman government. And as the church takes on the power of the state, interestingly enough, things don't actually get any better. The church, owning the power of state, leads to a little period of time we now commonly refer to as the Dark Ages. When the church becomes this powerful entity and shifts from the oppressed to the oppressor. And the gospel, which was once communicated to others through discipleship and evangelism and faithfulness, is now transferred by military and force and guilt and fear. Once the Reformation movement comes along, different states in Europe, different countries in Europe claim to be uh, extensions of different branches of the church, and they all sort of fight with each other. And if you're a Protestant in a Catholic country, you're going to have a rough time. And if you're a Catholic in a Protestant country, you're going to have a rough time because they just kind of torture and kill each other. Ultimately, those who fled to America 
in search of religious freedom. We're not actually running away from pagans and atheists. They were running away from their fellow Christians. And so our forefathers in this country, recognizing the challenges, crafted what we now refer to as the separation of church and state, not to protect the state from faith, but to protect the faith from the state. And, perhaps more importantly, to protect certain branches of the faith from other branches of the faith. And yet here we find ourselves again at a crossroads trying to understand what it means to be a Christian in an environment where the government has become antagonistic towards the core of what we believe. And I am reminded that this is a peculiar relationship. We are usually excellent citizens. We are excellent citizens in large part because we are preconditioned to believe that individuals and societies should answer to a system of law. And we assume a certain morality, at least in the ideal sense. We are inclined to morality, which means I don't need necessarily the government to tell me that I should not steal, that I should not commit fraud, that I should not murder. I'm already inclined to not do those things because I am following a moral code that tells me those things are wrong. I don't know about you, but I often forget to put that insurance card in, in my car. You know, one of the main reasons I forget to put that insurance card in my car is I don't expect to be pulled over. And I don't expect to be pulled over because the vast majority of the time I'm not breaking the law, and I'm certainly not willfully breaking the law. Sometimes I do it absentmindedly, for sure. But it is my expectation that I will at least attempt to hold myself to a moral standard such that the state doesn't have to exercise force in order to get me to be a good citizen. And so Christians, generally speaking, are excellent citizens because ideally we have no need of the state to compel us to respect and lawfulness. But at the same time, we are frequently and inherently seditious. And what I mean by that is our loyalty is not to the power of the state, the municipality, or the country in which we find ourselves. If we are compelled by the state to violate our conscience, Christians traditionally, respectfully, and forcefully decline. What makes us peculiar, really, is that our good citizenship and our seditious nature both come from the same place, the same basic principle of truth, which is that we are actually citizens of a different kingdom. That we show honor and respect to our worldly leaders, but not for their own sake. We show honor and respect to our worldly leaders because... We recognize that everything is under the authority of our king. 
And we are resistant to our worldly leaders for the exact same reason. Because we recognize that everything is under the authority of our king. Both of these are a function of our loyalty to him. You see, the supremacy of Christ requires that we seek first the kingdom of Christ. Now, in all honesty, because we have not had to fight these battles much in the last hundred years, our complacency and our comfort have caused a lot of Christians to confuse prosperity and patriotism with faith. We don't know where the gospel leaves off and the American dream begins. It's all about having two cars in the garage and a white picket fence. It's all about exercising our freedom to do whatever we like. But our admiration and our appreciation for American ideals doesn't change the fact that Jesus is Lord is not a theoretical. Jesus is Lord is the ultimate testimony of the Christian, the ultimate testimony of a disciple, ultimate testimony of a believer. Jesus is Lord, and it is not theoretical. It literally means Jesus has supremacy in everything. We need to understand, as we've been reading through Colossians, we need to understand something about the context of Colossians, because this is all written to a church under the rule of Rome. And the Roman Caesar, in that context, is considered the ultimate and divine authority. A lot of times what we'll miss, because we don't have the historical context, is that Caesar Augustus, you remember Caesar Augustus because Jesus was born during his reign. Caesar Augustus had the titles, some of which he'd given to himself in all honesty, but he had the titles Son of God, Lord, Redeemer, and Savior of the world. This is how people thought about Caesar. As a matter of fact, it is Augustus who really cements the power of the Caesar during this time, during the ministry of Jesus Christ. It was the influence of Augustus that made the Caesar as powerful and as influential as he was. And so here's what Paul says, going back to, to chapter 1 of Colossians, starting with verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, Paul is very judicious. Paul knows that if the Christians are caught with a letter that says the wrong thing, that they'll be accused of sedition and treason. But understand that Paul's words in this passage border very closely on treason. In fact, the only reason that Paul's words in this passage are not treasonous is that he does not advocate for any rebellion. In fact, we know in Romans 13, he tells us, you need to be subject to your earthly rulers and earthly leaders in your government. 
And yet, and yet, be clear about whose authority is actually supreme. Whether we regard our politicians as friends or foes, whether we regard our leaders as on our side or on somebody else's side, power in human hands is nearly always at odds with the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Human government inevitably trends towards the interest of the elite. This is, this is witnessed in, in nothing less than the transition that the church makes. The church, taking on the power of the state, moves from being an oppressed movement to being an institution that often exercises the same oppression that they experienced when they were being persecuted. There's a human assumption that we make when we are not in power that if we suddenly came into power, we would do a much better job than the people who are in power. Right? That's what we tend to think. We think that from the time that we're very little. When we're just small children, we think, when I'm the mom and dad, I'm going to do it all better. Because they get it all wrong. I'm going to fix it. When I have control, when I've got the money, when I've got the power, when I'm elected to office, I'm going to fix all these wrongs. There's a couple of problems with that. Number one is, to be able to identify a problem and complain about it is actually a pretty rudimentary skill. Now, I haven't had that much uh, time with him, but I'm guessing that little Elijah already has that skill. He can recognize when he's uncomfortable, and he can let everybody know that he's uncomfortable, right? You all probably, for, for, for all, of, all of us, that was probably the first communication skill that we ever learned, to recognize that something makes me uncomfortable and to make noise about it. Now, granted... Some of us never grow out of it. But it is a rudimentary skill, and here's the thing that we need to take away from that. It doesn't teach us anything about how to make it better. It only teaches us how to complain. But beyond that, beyond that, when we are granted power, without any accountability, it tends to vacate any idealistic intent that we began with. So no matter how good our idea is, no matter how good our intent, you grant me power without accountability, and my human nature is going to lead me down a road where I use that power for myself. Thomas Sowell, who's just one of my favorite people in the world, world-famous economist, said, no one will really understand politics until they understand that politicians are not trying to solve our problems. They are trying to solve their own problems, of which getting elected and re-elected are number one 
and number two, whatever is number three is far behind. Now, this principle applies universally. Whatever it is that we gain control of and whoever we are when we gain control of it, our natural human tendency is to seek to gain power, to consolidate power, and to hold on to power. And whatever problem we, in, we initially set out to solve becomes uh, a distant second to that problem. We say, but wait a minute. Was an American government founded on Christian ideals? Don't we talk about that all the time in conservative circles? Well, yes, in many ways, American government was founded on Christian ideals. But do you know why we call them ideals? Because we rarely achieve them. One of the American ideals is that all men are created equal. That is a very Christian idea, that we have been created, and that in the eyes of God, we're all the same. We all have the same value. But it took us more than a century to even acknowledge that black people in bondage were people. So the ideal still stands, but living up to the ideal, living up to our Christian ideals is, is a big challenge. And we're still working on it in so many different ways. And so the Christian principle, of all the many Christian principles that had an influence on the formation of American government, the Christian principle that has most enabled the American Republic is the depravity of man. It is the belief that man, left to his own devices, will probably do the wrong thing. Our American revolution and our system of self-government are really set apart from all previous revolutions and systems of government because they do not rely on the virtue of the revolutionaries to make everything okay. See, that's our assumption most of the time. We're the oppressed people, and when we take over, we'll end the oppression and we'll make everything better. That's not the way that it actually works. When people who aren't in power come into power, they tend to make the same mistakes that people in power made. They just make it for different people. People are basically terrible, remember. And without outside guidance, without the guidance of uh, the accountability to others, without the guidance of the righteousness of God, we will serve our own self-interests. The longevity of American democracy is built upon a balance of powers that recognizes that if you give too much power to any one party in government, they will abuse that power. We don't try to overcome that by making everybody moral because we just won't be able to do that. We try to overcome that by making everybody accountable. And so the threat to the Christian faith in America today is not just a shifting morality in the culture. It is the erosion of that balance of power. The ability of politicians to make decisions without accountability. 
in the form of executive orders and unrelated agency rules and, and courts that basically legislate through their decision making and, and, and a press that's supposed to be free but does not hold government accountable and frankly religion that's supposed to be free but does not hold the society accountable to morality. So now we find ourselves in this really odd place. According to the most recent survey, 43% of millennials don't know if God exists, don't care if God exists, or don't believe that God exists. Now, we tend to think uh, that what this means is that people are becoming more secular, that they're abandoning religion. The reality is, even if you don't believe in God, you still have existential questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What's this all about? What's the deeper meaning behind it? So what do we do with that? Well, we find a new way to express that spirituality. Our culture has begun to embrace government as its religion. We've been studying something I'm calling the sacred cure, which Paul tells us is rooted in the supremacy of Jesus Christ over everything, that this is the cure for all of life's ills. And it's been leading us through the letter to the Colossians. And thus far, Paul has been dealing primarily not with the cure. He's talked about the cure, but primarily right now what he's talking about is the disease. And the disease is all of the things that serve as an alternate to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. So it's no mistake that Paul's challenge to the sovereignty of Roman government is woven all through this letter. Because government has sort of a natural progression that it makes. Most governments begin whatever they think God is, they begin answering to the authority of some kind of divine righteousness. And then a little bit later, they find themselves claiming the authority of divine appointment. Today, we talk in terms of having a mandate, a mandate to do these things. And then we assume the authority of divine participation. We are actually on the same side as God, or God is on the same side as us. And eventually we reach the point of embracing the authority of divine replacement. We become the God that we have gotten rid of. When government assumes its own moral authority, it is clearly practicing idolatry. But look at the government that we have. Look at the government that we have had. Our government today provides us with certain messianic figures. Think about the themes of the last three election cycles. Hope, greatness, unity. Promising the American people things that only Jesus Christ can provide. That's a messianic theme. Our politicians serve as an elite priesthood, posturing and play-acting like modern-day Pharisees. 
the media and the science, not science, but the science, serve as prophets of this new religion, spreading the false gospel and constantly warning us of the apocalyptic doom we face if we do not comply. Zealots line the street preaching the latest apostasy, and anyone who dares challenge the narrative will be quickly labeled as a heretic and shuffled off into oblivion by self-righteous busybodies. See, every religion has its self-righteous busybodies. From masks to MAGA hats, the adherents of these new religions turn simple symbols into sacred symbols of the faith, of faithfulness, of solidarity, of virtue, a way to distinguish between the believers and the infidels. And the power of social media and public education do not inform, they indoctrinate. Such that we have subjected future generations to a catechism of broken ideas. I ask you, why? Why all this religious fervor? Why all this devotion and energy to human government? Well, because in the absence of true divinity, in the absence of God, the principalities of man will play God. And if then you can change the government, you can change God. If you can change God, you can change morality. And whatever passes into law, whatever decisions of the court are handed down, that becomes our new righteousness. In other words, folks, under this new religion, to wield the power of government is to give ourselves the power to define truth itself. Now, am I being too dramatic? Is it not as bad as all that? I wonder sometimes how dark the world around us has to get before Christians wake up and decide that they actually want to live in the kingdom of light. Because in all honesty, we haven't reached that point yet. Paul says in Colossians 2, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Folks, the church fulfills its mission by answering exclusively to the moral authority of Jesus Christ. The church fulfills its mission by answering exclusively to the moral authority of Jesus Christ. We can't keep doing the same thing, expecting new results. We have to venture into 
a new territory, a territory that's been prepared for us by our Lord and Savior, a territory that is his kingdom. The answer exclusively to the authority of Jesus Christ is not living with our feet in both worlds, trying to scrape away the best of each, and then wondering why the sacred cure never seems to materialize in our life. The answer exclusively to the moral authority of Christ is not the answer to men. It's not the answer to governments. It's not the answer to traditions. It is most certainly not the answer to ourselves. It is the answer only to Christ. Yeah.